um, I thought we'd begin with uh, some Bible trivia. So, um, can you name me the, the shortest book of the Bible, both Old and New Testament? Don't think anyone has got it. No. Actually, it was a slight uh, trick question, for the answer is uh, different according to number of words as against number of verses. By words, my sources reliably inform me, the, by words, the shortest book in our Bible is 3rd John, and by verses, it is 2nd John. But the book that we are going to study over these two weeks, this week and next week, is the shortest book in the Old Testament, whether by number of words or number of verses. And that book is Obadiah. Obadiah is in fact the only single chapter book of the Old Testament, whereas I think we have four single chapter uh, letters or books in the New Testament. And uh, one of the commentators that I read likened the book of Obadiah to, you know, one of those um, small villages that you come upon when you're driving and you get the sign, welcome to the village of whatever. Lestuder. <laughs> and then before you know it, in a sort of blink of an eye, it's thank you for having driven carefully through whatever. It just comes and goes so quickly. And it would be very easy to miss the book of Obadiah. Um, have any of you ever heard a sermon on Obadiah? Jonathan? Les? Did Les remember that? <laughs> Where is Les? <laughs> Where is Les? Is he here? Where is he? Do you remember that? <laughs> well, I had, I had this discussion with uh, our leadership and um, Jeff, he, he said, you know, I think back in the midst of time, I think maybe Mike Holland did a talk on uh, Obadiah within Castlereagh Fellowship, although I must admit I'm not convinced. And I have to confess, sorry, Les, but I <laughs> don't remember that stirring message either. <laughs> but um, other than knowing that Obadiah is one of the so-called you know, the minor prophets. I suspect that for most of us, we could sum up our knowledge of Obadiah through that well-known uh, Hebrew phrase, diddly squat. Um, it's one of the few Old Testament books that isn't actually quoted or referred to in the New Testament. So for us, I suppose if we're honest, Obadiah isn't normally on our radar. But being the sort of contrary sort of bloke that I am, I thought then it would be good to do um, a series on 
uh, Obadiah. After all, it is part of Holy Writ. And as the Apostle Paul tells us, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But given the letter's brevity, or the book's brevity, it is actually only 21 verses. Even with my notorious divisions and subdivisions, I can only get two talks out of it. So this morning and next week, DV, Obadiah, it is. But what I'm proposing to do is to use this morning's talk really as an orienteering session. We're going to be looking at the background and the context of the book of Obadiah. And then next week, we'll study in detail uh, the text of the, of the letter. But for both sessions, I do want to tease out some key takeaway lessons. And if, like me, you still like a hard copy of the Bible rather than reading the Bible on your phone, um, a basic problem is how to find it. So Obadiah is the fourth of the, the fourth of the minor prophets. I cheated because I put this in a few minutes ago so they could get it. It's the fourth one. So it's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. And if you've reached Jonah, you need to double back. So we're going to read the entire book of Obadiah just now. All, all of it. All 21 verses. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Timam, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. 
You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not match, march sorry, through the gates of my people in, that, in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy and Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be a stubble and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. And I'm sure we all find that incredibly easy to understand and very, very straightforward. Um, it is because of the difficulty of it that I am, as I've already said, going to spend this morning looking at the background and context of the book. And then next week we'll get into the detail of the text itself. So first of all, what do we actually know about the prophet Obadiah himself? Answer, very little. Uh, Vernon McGee writes, Obadiah is cloaked in anonymity. We know absolutely nothing about his lineage or his birthplace. We do know that his name means servant of Yahweh, servant of God. But actually, Obadiah was a very common name in Bible times. And there are some, apparently some 12 individuals named in the Bible who are Obadiah, called Obadiah, in the, in the Old Testament alone. As regards the date of his writing, sorry to again disappoint, but there is no clear-cut agreement. In fact, there are six possible dates that are given for the time of writing of Obadiah. But the main difference is between those who go for an early date way back in the 8th or 9th century BC and those who opt for a later date in and around the fall of Jerusalem um, at the hands of the Babylonians in, you know, 586 BC. 
But I would suggest that no matter the precise time of writing, there are actually big lessons that we can learn from this part of scripture. What about the theme and the structure of the book? Well, as you can see from the opening um, verse, Obadiah is largely a message of divine judgment concerning the nation of Edom. And more about Edom uh, in a moment. Verses 1 to 9 speak of the coming defeat of Edom. And verses 10 to 14 tell us the crimes of Edom. And then the remaining verses, 15 to 21, widen the focus beyond Edom, Edom towards uh, what's called the, to the, the day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment, of divine judgment against all nations, not just Edom, but all nations. But it's also a day of restoration for you know, Judah or Israel. But if you're still struggling to get a, a sort of a, a hold, a handle on, on, the, on the book, a feel for the book, I want to move on to consider the sort of the guiding narrative, the guiding story of Obadiah, for this is really the key to understanding the book. Johnny Gibson is a lecturer at, at Westminster Seminary in the United States, but Johnny Gibson actually hails from this province, from these parts. In fact, in the past, he darkened the doors of Castlereagh Fellowship as a visiting speaker in Greenway one time. But Johnny's gone on to bigger and better things, and he is a bit of an expert on Obadiah. And I listened to, I think it was Nancy Guthrie, um, she has a podcast in which she interviews acknowledged Bible experts in different parts of the scripture. And she did a whole podcast with Johnny Gibson on how to teach um, Obadiah. And Johnny Gibson said that the book of Obadiah centers upon, wait for it, Esau Redivivus. Esau Redivivus. In language that you and I can understand, what that means is Esau brought back to life. Esau brought back to life. And what he's referring to is the legacy of the animosity between Esau and Jacob. So to understand the message of Obadiah, the book of Obadiah, we're first going to have to do a little bit of biblical history this morning. You'll remember that Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And right from the get-go, there was a competitive and hostile relationship between the two. Indeed, we're told that even whilst in Rebekah's womb, the twins were jostling with one another. When Rebecca inquired of the Lord, why this jostling? She had it revealed to her 
that her boys were going to head up rival nations. And crucially, the older of the twins, the first to emerge from the womb, was going to serve the younger. And when the time of birth arrived, Esau, the redhead, was first to emerge, followed by Jacob clasping the heel of his sibling. And as the boys grew up, Isaac favoured the more macho um, Esau, but Rebekah preferred the quiet, scheming Jacob. Jacob managed to secure the family birthright from Esau. Esau was willing to give up this privileged position as the family's representative and priest for a meal for a mere bowl of stew, of red stew. Indeed, given that Edom means red, that is why Esau also came to be referred to as Edom. And then his descendants, Esau's descendants, became known as the Edomites. And when Isaac lay on his deathbed, Jacob conspired along with his mother to trick Isaac into giving his blessing, which was associated with the Abrahamic covenant, to him, rather than, as was the custom, to the eldest son. So Jacob had twice done a job on his elder brother. Although, of course, in the first case, it must be said that Esau was certainly culpable too, because we're told that Esau despised his birthright. That is, the carnal desire to satisfy his hunger pains outweighed the value that he placed on his spiritual privileges. The relationship between Esau and Jacob was thus tempestuous at best. Indeed, upon realizing Jacob's deception regarding Isaac's blessing, Esau resolved to kill Jacob, forcing Jacob to flee to Laban. And although there was something of a reconciliation between the brothers thereafter, the fact is that relations between their descendants reverted to type. Esau, as we've noted, became the father of the Edomites, whilst Jacob's sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the book of Numbers, we read of how when the Israelites were traveling to the promised land, the Edomites refused to let the Israelites pass through their territory. Relations between these brother nations continued to be fractious with frequent outbreaks of conflict. And under King David, the Edomites were actually conquered and made subject to Judah. And Edom would then look for any chance to rebel against Judah, joining alliances of Judah's enemies. And as we'll see next week, and as we read really, Edom gloated over and assisted with the defeat of Judah and the fall of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians. 
Thus the prophet Ezekiel declared that the Edomites harbored an ancient hostility, hostility and delivered the Israelites over to the sword at the time of their calamity, the time their punishment reached its climax, Ezekiel 35, verse 5. So to understand the book of Obadiah, you need to read it in the context of this conflict narrative between Esau and Jacob and of the two nations that they spawned, Edom and Israel or Jacob or Judah. Indeed, the book contains five references to Esau and two to Jacob. So what we're now going to do is a bit of a history lesson on Edom itself, on the country, the, the people of Edom. Um, I've told you this before, but um, I acted as head of department in Sullivan uh, for, for two years. I was the head of history in Sullivan, despite the fact I'd never, ever taught a period of history in my life and never taught a period during when I was head of department or until I retired, which is quite a, I, I love that story. <laughs> So what I want to do is give you a potted history of Edom, even with my limited history teaching ability. And again, we're trying to understand the context of Obadiah's prophecy against this particular people who were very much Israel's or Judah's traditional enemy. Genesis 36 verse 9 reads, this is the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Seir. This mountainous territory lay to the southeast of Judah. And it contained these red sandstone cliffs, some of which were 5,000 feet above sea level. It was on a major trade route the so-called King's Highway between the Red Sea and Damascus. And you'll see the importance of this next week when we get into the detail of the text. Edom's capital city, Sela, was embedded in those cliffs. And thus it gave the appearance of being absolutely impregnable, of totally secure. There was no way anyone was going to conquer them. Read the text. But despite their sense of invincibility, the Edomites were going to suffer a major defeat at the hands of the Babylonian emperor Nabodinus in 553 BC. And then as we move into the intertestamental period, in around 300 BC, Edom was conquered by the Nabataean Arabs, with the remaining Edomites forced into the desert area of the Negev that we read about. The Edomites suffered at the time of the Jewish Maccabean revolt in 125 BC. The Maccabean leader, John Hyrcanus, forced the Edomites to be circumcised. But in the year 
37 BC, the Romans appointed the Idumean. And Idumean is basically Greek for Edomite. The Romans appointed Herod, or Herod the Great, as he became known, as ruler over the Roman province of Judea. So this was basically an Edomite being made king over Judea, the land of the Jews. And the old animosity between the two brothers resurfaced as Herod sought to kill the true king of the Jews, Jesus. It was one of Herod's the great sons, Herod Antipas, who participated in the events surrounding the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. You know, that's the Herod that we read about at the time of the, you know, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And when in AD 70, the Roman army was threatening to destroy Jerusalem, According to the Jewish historian Josephus, 20,000 Edomites were admitted to Jerusalem, supposedly in order to protect Jerusalem from the Romans. But what did they do? They engaged in massive bloodshed and looting against the Jews. But that did not spare them from the Romans. Because when the Roman army came into Jerusalem, they, they basically slaughtered the Edomites as well. And that is considered the effective end of the nation of Edom. Again, I refer you to what you're going to be reading next week about the end, the total destruction of Edom. Edom. Today, the land that was formerly known as Edom is sparsely inhabited by some Bedouin Arabs and a few troops who form a military outpost of the Jordanian army. Now, I know that's an awful lot of information, but hopefully you get the picture, the general picture of two peoples repeatedly at each other's throats and how Obadiah's prophecy was going to be realized in what actual history records of Edom. Now, as Gaz will confirm, every teacher worth his or her salt likes to give some homework. So I'm going to give you all a homework assignment for next Sunday. I want you to read Obadiah. In fact, I want you to read it several times because it'll not take you long to do so. And as you do so, as you read it, keep in mind the context of the hostile relationship between Esau and his descendants and Jacob and his descendants. And for the really keen students among you, there's a bit of additional reading because you might want to have a look at Jeremiah chapter 49. Jeremiah 49, 7 to 22, because there's a huge overlap there between what's written by Jeremiah and what Obadiah says. In fact, some of the, the dispute over the timing, the dating of the letter, goes back to some commentators think 
Obadiah copied Jeremiah. Others think the reverse. So that's where that comes in. But you'll see there's massive overlap. So if you do your homework, if you all do your homework for next week, I promise that I am going to finish on time next week. But I'm sorry, I'm not going to finish on time this week because I want to leave, in case some of you go out thinking, oh, it's just history. I want to leave with two takeaway lessons this morning. And sort of this taps into our time around the table and the prayers that were prayed. Um, the first one is this. God is sovereign in election. God is sovereign in election. Why is it that God chose Jacob, not Esau? Why the Israelites, not the Edomites? Was it that Jacob was better than Esau or that the Israelites were better than the Edomites? The answer, to quote Gerald when he was referring it to ourselves, must be no. Jacob was a schemer, a deceiver. And when God chose Israel, it was not because they were any better than the surrounding peoples. Indeed, thereafter, despite Israel having the advantage of having God's law and sacrificial system, the Israelites were prone to idolatry and wickedness. And without the law, they certainly would have been every bit as bad as their brother nation, Edom. The reason for the choice of Jacob and his descendants lies in the mysteries of God's sovereignty. God can choose whoever he wishes. And the same truth applies to us, to those of us who are born again Christians today. We owe, and I'm nearly quoting Gerald, we owe our salvation not to our own righteousness, not to us being better than others, and certainly not because we're of a particular race or nationality, but simply to God's sovereign choice. And yes, it's true that with our free will, we responded positively to God's offer of salvation. But we must never make that a source of pride or self-commendation. For it was only because of the activity, the sovereign activity of God's Holy Spirit, that you and I were brought to repentance and to faith in Christ. So God is sovereign in the matter of election as in anything else, everything else. Never think that your salvation is your work or that you in any way merited it above anyone else. And finally, the principle of the great reversal, the great reversal. We have seen that Jacob supplanted Esau, the fulfillment of God's promise to Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. And isn't this often the way with God's kingdom? Think of David, David, Saul's successor, the youngest of Jesse's sons. Think of Joseph, who became the prime minister of Egypt, the youngest of Jacob's sons. We can go right back all the way to Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. God accepted the offering of the younger son, Abel, 
and rejected that of his elder brother Cain. And then there's Abraham's offspring. Isaac was the child of promise, not his elder sibling, Ishmael. This pattern is part of what Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller, calls the great reversal. That is, God chooses the less likely to fulfill his purposes. The weak, the underdog, the despised, the poor, the marginalized. Think of Jesus and his choice of disciples. Among them, ordinary fishermen and a hated tax collector. Jesus also named women, including a former prostitute, amongst his band of supporters. Women, of course, being regarded by ancient Roman and Greek culture as inferior to men. And then listen to the Apostle Paul as he describes the composition of the church at Corinth that Andrew uh, referred us to earlier, the letter to, to the Corinthians. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And is that not a description of us, of you and me? By the world standards, insignificant. But we are those whom God has sovereignly chosen and saved that we might be his children and that we might take forward his redeeming purposes for this creation. There is a definite topsy-turvy character to the kingdom of God. So you and I have been chosen according to God's sovereignty and by his grace, you and I are part of the Bible storyline of God's great reversal. And for both of those things, and the fact that I'm finally finishing, the people of God said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.